0: A topic of great interest to all of us. And that's the topic of pain. How to understand it, how to relate to it, how to use it. Our relationship to pain is well expressed in one of the stories of Mala Nazruddin. It seems he was traveling back and forth between Turkey and Persia. He was making this journey very often and slowly amassing a great fortune. Every time he came back into Persia, across the border, the customs people would search the saddlebags on his donkey, looking for jewels or drugs or whatever they smuggled in those days. They could never find anything. Nasruddin would go through. Reports are circulating about how wealthy he's becoming. He's making all this money. Again, back and forth. and Every time he stops at the border going back into Persia, they search and all they find is the straw in the saddlebags. This is a great mystery to the government officials. After some time of doing this, One of the customs people retired and met Nasruddin in the marketplace and said, now you can tell me what you've been doing all these years. I'm not with the government anymore. How is it that you managed to amass so much money? Nasruddin turned to him and he said, well, I was smuggling donkeys. we we relate in somewhat the same way in our practice we're looking in the saddlebags of our mind right for the jewels or the cosmic flashes you know or the sudden illuminations and actually we're missing the donkey we're not seeing or appreciating or relating skillfully actually to what's happening in each moment because of our desire to see something special. Pain very much falls into this category. We think that the purpose of meditation is to somehow get rid of the pain so then we can meditate, and then we can get enlightened. And we're missing the value that we can derive from that experience. There are different kinds of pain that come to us in our practice in our lives and it's helpful to differentiate them because different of the kinds of pain require different responses. One kind of painful sensation is a danger signal. If you put your hand in fire and it starts to burn you don't particularly want to say burning, burning, burning. (laughs) There's a message coming to us. You know, danger, withdraw a hand. And I think most of us are fairly familiar with that kind of pain. It's basic common sense. Another kind of pain has to do with unaccustomed posture. You know, especially those of you who have just come, perhaps some of you who have been here for a while, are still getting used to sitting in a posture that we don't usually use as often or frequently as we're doing here. So there's a quality of stretching out certain muscles and strengthening certain ones. There's some discomfort which comes from that. The third kind of pain is the most interesting one. It's the kind that can be the most revealing to us in terms of our understanding and practice. And that's the pain of accumulated tensions and knots. Throughout our lives, because we haven't been totally mindful in our lives, (laughs) uh, we accumulate tension as a result of our reactiveness of mind. Every moment of grasping, of clinging, of attachment, There's a tension involved in that, and that tension is stored. In every mind moment of aversion, or condemning, or judging, or disliking, hatred, anger, there's tension in those those moments. That tension is stored. Through our lifetime, as you've been experiencing, either in the short or long time that you've been here, there's been this tremendous accumulation of deep tension holding patterns in the mind and body. Mostly, in the course of our lives, we're unaware of it. You can be walking down the street of any city and see people with their shoulders almost touching their ears, and yet if you ask them, are you tense? No, you have any tension in your body? No, feel fine. It becomes so much of a pattern that for most of us it's invisible to us until we sit still, until we slow down and begin to sensitize ourselves actually to what's going on. So a lot of the pain and discomfort that we feel in the practice is actually a coming into touch with a deeper level of our experience. So, as if we begin to become aware of the energy patterns in our body, those patterns of holding. We begin to feel, often for the first time, the depth and the intensity of those particular patterns. Then what does the mind do? As we become aware of the pain and the tension that's there, how does the mind relate to that? It has a few responses, very conditioned, habituated responses that aren't so skillful, not, not very helpful. One of the responses that we get involved in as we're sitting feeling the pain is self-pity. Poor me, poor me. Everybody else is in bliss <laughs> <laughs> and I hurt. My back hurts, my neck hurts, my legs hurt. And the mind just gets lost in that kind of self-pity. It doesn't lead any place. It just creates more tension and more pain and more tightness. Another kind of response, perhaps even more common and mm, stronger, is that of fear. Very often in the face of pain, in the face of feeling it, there arises a real fear in the mind. We're afraid to feel pain, often. What is fear? What's the manifestation of that on the energy level? The manifestation of fear is contraction. When something's there and we get afraid, you can feel the whole body tighten. What happens as we tighten? Ties the tension in even deeper. Ties a new knot on top of everything that we're carrying. And so it's not a skillful way to actually relate to the pain, to open to it, because it just makes more of it. So if these are the conditioned responses, our habits of mind. What are the possibilities for relating to pain, painful feeling, painful experience, that in some way is conducive to the process of opening, to the process of liberation. The first step in relating to pain skillfully is to take a very direct look at what pain is. Pain is a cover word. It's a word. It's a concept that we use to describe Certain experiences. Very often the mind gets frightened simply by the concept. Even if we have a vague impression of something and we label it pain, just seeing the word in our mind is enough to cause us to try to avoid it. So we have to go underneath the concept, underneath that word pain to see actually what it is. What's the experience that's going on? What do we find? We find that there's an experience of certain sensations. It's the manifestation of of the physical elements as sensations in the body. And the sensations may be very intense, it's true. What kind of sensations? Burning, stabbing, throbbing, pulling, pressure, tightness. whole range of sensations that we feel. When we come to the actual sensation level, what happens is that the solidity of the concept, my leg hurts, or there's pain in my knee, that solidifies, that makes something solid and unchanging. When we drop underneath that level to the sensation, to the experience of the sensation, even though the sensations are intense, they may be very strong, we begin to penetrate past the solidity of it, past the concept of knee, past the concept of pain, past the concept of self. Just we begin to experience the, the vibratory quality of that energy, of the throbbing, or the stabbing, or the burning, or the pulling, whatever it may be. What that requires is a close attention, to bring the attention just into the sensation, not looking at it distance, because if we look at it from a distance, in the space between the awareness and the sensation, there's room for a lot of concepts to form. Concepts of pain, concepts of self, concepts of me. When we're just close, when we're close into the experience, all those concepts dissolve. When the attention is close, close in to the sensation, what are the attitudes which help the mind to actually open to it? If fear is not helpful and self-pity is not helpful, what is? The foundation of working with these sensations, with these feelings that are unpleasant, the bottom line attitude is one of acceptance. To be allowing for those sensations to be there, to be accepting of them, rather than resisting or rejecting them, because it's the rejection and the resistance which simply tightens the system more, creates more pain. Being accepting, being allowing, being soft. It's softening the mind. It's relaxing into the sensation rather than pulling away from it. Painful feelings are actually a wonderful object of meditation precisely because they're so intense. When you have a strong pain, your mind doesn't wander very much. It's right there. It can be very highly concentrated. We can get enlightened with pain as the object. But what it takes is that softening into it being a very, very accepting. There's one story of my teacher, Munindra, in Bodhgaya, when a few of us were sitting around a chai shop, tea shop, and one of our friends was having a very bad headache. Munindra comes along and he asks how we're doing. His friend says, oh, I've had this headache for a day or two. It's very painful. The ninja turns to him and says, Oh, I hope you are enjoying it. Can we enjoy our pain? It takes practice, it's true. But it's possible. There was one time, quite a few years ago, I was in California, and I was sitting in a friend's car in the middle of the front seat. And I had my arm over the back of the seat. Somebody else got in and closed the door on my finger. It hurts so much. It hurts even when I think of it now. <laughs> I can just <laughs> It was so painful. And it was at night, and it didn't seem anything to do about it. And so all night long, there was this intense, intense pain. It was hard to imagine that one small tip of the body right, could cause so much pain. And it was a very interesting process for me that evening, because for quite a while, I was up all night. There was not a, moment, a moment's sleep. For a long time, I was just with it and watching. And it was so intense, it was rather easy to watch. My mind was, was soft and allowing and balanced and I got so incredibly high, my mind got so concentrated, it was like the state of bliss surrounding that very intense pain. What happened around three or four in the morning was that I started getting tired, and I lost that quality of acceptance. And my mind started reacting then to the pain, and there was the self-pity, and then there was the fear, and the suffering got worse. And it was a very interesting example of how the pain remained the same. The pain was exactly the same, but the attitude towards it totally conditioned the quality of the experience. When I was soft and open and accepting, it was fantastic. When I was resistant and trying to avoid and push it away, then there was a lot of suffering. So it's not pain that's the problem. It's in how we're relating to it. And it takes practice, which you've all been doing now for quite a while, practicing softening, practicing accepting. You see, over a period of time, as those of you who have been here a while have seen, that actually our tolerance for what we can accept, the limits of what we can accept, really accept get much, much enlarged. What's difficult the first few days of a retreat, at the end of a couple of months, is nothing. It doesn't, doesn't even cause a ripple in the mind. This process of accepting and allowing is the healing process for the mind and body. If you think of this, or experience it, this mind-body as an energy system, which which basically is what it is. What's happened is that because of how we've lived our lives, there are a lot of knots. It's like the energy is tied up into knots. With this space of acceptance, with the space of allowing, what happens is that these knots begin to untie. Not that we are untying them. They untie themselves when we create the space for them to do it. It's somewhat similar to fasting. When we fast from taking food, what happens? We stop taking food, we stop putting things in, and then the body starts releasing the kinds of toxins or poisons that have been accumulated. We may not feel so good in the process, but it's actually a process of cleansing, of eliminating, of releasing. The meditation is what Chuang Tzu called a fasting of the heart. We're not putting stuff in through our reactions, through our attachments, our condemning, our greed, our hatred. We're fasting from that. That is, we're settling back with that quality of openness and allowing what's there to manifest, to come to the surface. And in that process, these energy knots begin to release. So Vipassana, in this sense, is a tremendously cleansing process. Tonight, mostly, I'm speaking of it in terms of the body. It's the same process that's involved with the mind the kind of knots that are in the mind and the opening of them. It works in the same way. Letting go by letting be. Now in spiritual disciplines we hear so often about letting go. Let go of the pain, let go of the attachments, let go of this, let go of that. And in some ways that's misleading because the letting go, there's a suggestion in that that there's something we have to do. And so people always ask, well, how can I let go? There's no one that has to let go. Much more it's a process of letting things be. If we can let things be, they let go of themselves. Everything is changing all the time. If we don't obstruct the process, if we don't block the process, if we simply let things be, this natural healing takes place. It's a natural unfolding. What happens very often? What prevents us from this letting things be? Often it's an anticipated fear of discomfort. Fear of discomfort feeds into our desire system. A couple of years ago, I was sitting in England with some Burmese monks, Mahasi Sayadaw and some of his disciples. And every morning I went downstairs for breakfast. And they had oatmeal and toast and tea and fruit. And I went down and I took my oatmeal and two pieces of toast and tea and fruit. I started eating mindfully. After I finished everything except one piece of toast, I was full. I put the second piece of toast back. The next morning I come down and what are they serving? Oatmeal and toast and fruit and tea. I take the oatmeal and two pieces of toast and fruit and tea, and I eat. When I finish the first piece of toast and the oatmeal and the fruit and the tea, I was full put the second piece of toast back. Third morning, I come down. What are they serving? Oatmeal and toast and fruit and tea. Take my oatmeal, two pieces of toast, fruit and (laughs) tea. After the one piece of toast, I put the second one back. Fourth day, what are they serving? Oatmeal and toast and fruit and tea. I go through the line, take my oatmeal, two pieces of toast, fruit and (laughs) tea. And I was watching myself do this. somewhat in disbelief, although I was pretty used to the fact that minds generally have no pride. <laughs> uh, and there was ample, ample experience of that. It took a week of going through that line until I could not take the second piece of toast. <laughs> you know, and I saw that there was it reflected a pattern which I called the just-in-case syndrome. <laughs> Just in case I'm hungry, you know, I'll take the second (coughs) piece of toast. Just in case, you know, they don't put out peanuts in the evening, I'll take the second helping. Just in case I'll be tired tomorrow, I'll go to sleep early tonight. You know, and we live our lives anticipating that fear of discomfort, that fear of insecurity of some kind binds us, feeds the desire system, and so we get caught up in that cycle. A lot of practice has to do with being okay, getting okay with being uncomfortable. That at times discomfort, whether it's painful sensations or tiredness or feelings of hunger, At times, in our practice and in our lives, unpleasant feelings are going to arise. Can we learn that that's okay? That we don't have to live our lives doing everything we can to avoid those feelings, because then we tie ourselves in knots. We build prisons for ourselves. Working with pain, opening to pain, to discomfort, begins to open up a whole range of experience in our lives that previously we've been close to. You now as winter comes on here, there'll be some wonderful opportunities to see how you can open to the intensity of discomfort. Mm-hmm. There are some days when it gets really cold you know, arctic cold, as an experiment, sometimes just go outside and be watchful of how the mind relates to it. The first tendency probably will be to contract, you know, and to close off to it, not to want to experience it. See if it's possible to open to it, just to go out on a really cold day, breathe deep, and open to the experience of the cold be accepting, being allowing of it. It's a totally different experience. And it's so much a model for how we live our lives. That is, closing off to experiences, whether it's in the body, in the mind, in situations, we close off to what's uncomfortable, close off to what's painful, and it closes us off to half of life. Working with pain, in your sitting practice, is a very good way of beginning to reverse that process, of getting the mind okay and soft and relaxed behind things that are unpleasant. Being allowing, being soft, being accepting. Another very skillful quality of mind in working with pain is a sense of humor. Not only in working with pain, in working with life. Can we smile? Can we smile at ourselves, smile at the situation? There's one suggestion that was made by a Vietnamese monk, teaching in Los Angeles, which I would like to suggest that you do literally, not metaphorically. And that is to practice with a half-smile. Just when you're sitting or walking have a half-smile, right now, try it. <laughs> now that's a full smile. <laughs> just, just a half-smile. It's quite amazing how, I don't know whether the muscles in the face affect the brain. <laughs> something goes on, but the half-smile definitely lightens things. You know, and So instead of walking around with that, somberness or heaviness, taking oneself so seriously, it just puts a quality of spaciousness into our experience. There are times when things get so intense, so unbearably intense, that the only thing left to do is to smile, to see the ludicrousness of the situation. There was a time when I was sitting with Goenkaji in India, He had to sit, take these vow hours of not moving, and when I first started sitting, by the end of the day, my knee was like pounding a nail through the knee, screaming pain. And What he would do is start off the sitting and then go off to his room, which was just off the meditation hall, and read his newspaper and chomp on an apple and drink his tea, all of which you could hear in the meditation (laughs) hall. It infuriated me. And you know, here I was sitting with this intense pain, which he was causing. <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't even sitting there with me, you know, he was off having a good time. And so all of this was going on. There was the intense pain, and there was the real anger in my mind, and the violence, and the screaming going on. All that was left was to see how humorous I was. And as soon as I could flip into that mode, the whole situation became much more acceptable. It was still intense, but it was okay. So Don't forget your sense of humor, because it's very helpful. Being accepting, being allowing, keeping a sense of humor, being patient. Patience is one of the perfections, it's one of the paramis of Buddhahood. And I'm sure you've had a sense by now of the importance and the value of patience and practice. And I was so interested in coming back to America after having been in India for so many years and just looking at kind of New Age magazines and you know, what was being offered. And one of the first things I saw were Enlightenment Weekends. Yeah, <laughs> It's like, Go for a weekend and get enlightened, and and it's so much the American mentality, you know, of everything quick and fast. And but real spiritual practice isn't like that. It's it's really an evolution of a lifetime, and perhaps many lifetimes. Practice is for a life. When you have that perspective on practice, it very much helps us to stay balanced and patient behind all the ups and downs the quality of one particular sitting, a lot of pain or a lot of restlessness, uh, very collected and cool. We're just there with it. We don't get attached if it's wonderful, we don't get depressed if it's difficult, with the understanding that practice is for a long time. Many of the stories we've told of the Buddha and his teaching have to do with his uttering one verse, and who's ever listening getting enlightened. There are just as many stories on the other side. One in particular in which one monk was, undertook the walking meditation, that was his practice, and he walked for sixty years. It took him sixty years to, to penetrate to the depths of the Dharma. And it said that as he was walking, if ever he took a step that wasn't mindful, he walked back and took it over again. There's a lot of patience, 60 years of walking practice. Time is not a factor in spiritual practice, it's an irrelevant consideration. It has to do with our ability to relate to each moment with a skillful mind, with an open mind. Patience is a very big help. The last quality that I'd like to talk about tonight, which is, it's really at the heart of the practice, is the quality of trust. There's no one word in English which expresses the meaning of the Pali word, sādhā. It's faith, it's confidence, it's trust, it's all of those components. And it's one of the spiritual faculties. There's faith and effort and mindfulness and concentration and wisdom. These are the five spiritual faculties that have to be brought to maturity. Trust is listed first because it's the foundation, it's the basis for our ongoing practice. Trust in what? There are different kinds of trust. One kind of trust is trust in the moment, trust in the moment's experience. Now we took, on the first night, a few nights ago, we took refuge in the Dharma. What that means is we take refuge in the truth. What's the truth? It's not some abstract principle. The truth is the experience of each moment. What is the truth of this moment? If there's pain, if there's a painful sensation, that's the dharma of that moment. Have we really taken refuge in that? Or do we take refuge only in some dharmas? I'll take refuge in the pleasant dharmas and not in the unpleasant that doesn't work. Taking refuge in the truth, in the Dharma, means that we're willing, we're making that commitment to be open, to be accepting of every moment's gift. And sometimes it's pleasant and sometimes it's unpleasant, but that's our challenge, that's our commitment, that we're willing to experience that. There's a quality of trust which develops from our, from our ability to stay right there with whatever's happening. That's one kind of trust. Another kind of trust has to do with the trust of the direction of practice. And this is a little tricky to understand because the word direction implies time and space, as if we're going from here to there and we're trusting the direction. And that's not the kind of trust or direction that I mean. Trust in this sense, confidence, faith, is the faith in the direction of understanding. A couple of years ago, I was back in Asia, I was in Sri Lanka, and just sort of walking around some of the cities. And as often happens in Asia, it's so overpopulated that almost wherever you are, you have this sense of literally a sea of humanity, of bodies, just surrounded all the time by masses and masses and masses of people. One day, as I was just in the middle and part of this swirling mass, an image came to my mind. It was really the image of the wheel of samsara. You know, how people get caught up in their lives, being born, living out their lives, reacting, loving, hating, grasping, condemning, being comfortable, being uncomfortable, dying, being reborn, going through that same cycle. And the sense of the circularity, we're not getting any place, going around and around, driven by the conditioning of mind, by the habits of mind, those very habits of clinging and grasping, which keep this whole wheel going. And then reflecting on the power and the beauty of that practice of Dharma, of truth, which allows us to come to the sense of direction in our unfolding lives. So that instead of simply circling around on this wheel of desire and aversion, it's possible actually to settle back into ourselves and to trust the direction of understanding. That's the kind of trust that I mean. It's not a direction of going anyplace, it's a direction of opening to what's true. And through the Dharma practice, we begin to get a sense, and it's it's very precious, of a context of meaning in our lives. Instead of simply living out patterns of conditioning through a deepening of understanding. You can begin to see the unfolding in the context of a meaning, of a purpose. And the purpose is one, the direction is one, of deepening wisdom, deepening awareness. And that's not going anyplace. It's not a direction out in time or space. It's a direction back inside. So this trust of the moment, trust of the moment's experience, trust of the direction, There's one other kind of trust that's very important to understand and practice, and it's the trust of the unfolding process. The ability to settle back and let things unfold in a natural, organic way. You see how difficult it is, how the mind loves to interfere, loves to manipulate, loves to direct, if only I could make this a little better. always jumping in and trying to take control. It's very difficult to learn how to settle back with a total trust of the unfolding process, simply letting it happen. One of the mechanisms the mind uses to block this kind of trust has to do with taking some past experience that we liked, felt good about, and project that into the future and try to get it again. So yesterday you had a wonderful sitting and you were clear and your mind was luminous and you were on the verge of enlightenment, and then it went away, and now you're sitting full of tension and full of pain, and the mind starts thinking, if only I could get that back." If only somehow I could recreate that experience, then my practice would be going along fine. That's not a correct understanding, and it's not the development of trust. That's like saying, winter is a mistake, and if only I could get summer back and many people do think that, (laughs) winter is not a mistake. (laughs) It's supposed to be here, and it's following its own unfolding, its own evolution. What we're experiencing is not a mistake. And if we can let go of that idea that we know what's supposed to be happening, and trying to get back something that we think would be better, or nicer, or more pleasant. If we can let go of that idea, then it becomes a much simpler matter of settling back with that quality of trust. Practice becomes so much more effortless. Sit back, open to whatever's happening. It's pleasant, it's painful, it doesn't matter. In that sense, there's no anticipation of what comes next. Because if we're living our lives, and the practice in the retreat is just a microcosm of how we live our lives, if we're living our lives constantly planning and anticipating of how we would like it to be, we really are prisoners of our own past experience. That is, we're taking something from our past experience and thinking, oh, that would be nice to happen. Rather, to realize that each moment comes out of the unknown, (coughs) to begin to relate to the unknown with trust rather than with fear. There's one tribe in Africa which does a wonderful thing with time and space. They visualize or imagine the past in front of them and the future behind them because the past they can see, and the future they can't. And so they're just backing into the future. No anticipation, no expectation, because they don't know what's coming. (laughs) We don't know what's coming either, but we think we do. We put the future ahead of us. See if, as you sit, you can turn yourself around. So instead of sitting, anticipating the next moment, sit and back into the next moment. And in that movement of backing into the next moment, there's no anticipation, there's no clinging, there's no expectation because we don't know what's happening. We don't know what's coming next. In that, in that way of relating, it's a true beginner's mind.